Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, National Urban League President and CEO Mark Morial shares why he called for Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment and why others need to be held accountable for the attack on the Capitol. This scenario, it's an embarrassment to me. It's painful to me as an American uh, to see this. It is the stuff of totalitarian uh, regimes, uh, banana republic regimes, uh, regimes that don't respect the rule of law. Where someone loses an election, they cry fraud, and they just stay in power indefinitely. We have to send the message in the United States, no, 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 a thousand times no. That conversation in just a moment. But first this, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp doubled down and defended his handling of the coronavirus pandemic during his annual State of the State address today. I faced just a little criticism from all sides when we chose to safely and methodically reopen the state. For news cycle after news cycle, it seemed like the only voices given a megaphone were from those who could work from home long term and those who had the resources to shelter in place for months on end. But the voices I heard were the voices of men and women from Bainbridge to Bolingbrook to Baldwin, who had spent years building their business, creating jobs, sowing a harvest they hoped to one day reap for themselves and their families, literally days away from losing it all. I heard their fear, the uncertainty, not knowing what tomorrow may hold. Now, in addition to addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, the governor also condemned the fatal shooting of Ahmaud Arbery, a black man in coastal Georgia who was killed while jogging by two white men. The governor added he will reform the citizen's arrest statute, which the defendants claim they were justified in chasing Arbery. Here's the governor. The deranged behavior that led to this tragedy was excused away because of a law that is ripe for abuse and enables sinister evil motives. That's why my administration plans to introduce significant reforms to our state citizens arrest statute. And working with legislative leaders and members of both parties, I believe that we can take another step toward a better, safer, and more just future for our state. We can again send a clear message. Georgia is a state that protects all of its people and fights for injustice wherever it is found. Governor Kemp also gave insight into what to expect in his upcoming proposed budget. He said a major focus will center on rural Georgia. Kemp plans to allocate $40 million for a rural innovation fund to help businesses and $20 million for rural broadband. The governor added overall the state will weather the financial hardships brought on by the pandemic. Thanks to the passage of the CARES Act, 
conservative budgeting, and our measured reopening of Georgia's economy, our rainy day fund remains strong. Other states are looking at further cuts to employees and essential services. For aid, they're now forced to turn to a dysfunctional and distracted Washington, D.C. But because we acted swiftly and early, the budgets my administration will propose in the coming days include no new cuts to state agencies and departments, no furloughs, no widespread layoffs to state employees, and I might add no new taxes to pay for it all. In other news related to the coronavirus pandemic, a new report from the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, it's a grim forecast. 92,000 Americans are projected to die from the coronavirus over the next three weeks. Now, this is a 25% increase in deaths. And on to this, Georgia is now listed fourth in the nation with COVID-19 hospitalizations, according to the White House Coronavirus Task Force report. And with that news, the head of Grady Memorial Hospital here in Atlanta says his facility is full. CEO Dr. John Hopper says this is due to a rise in COVID-19 patients and those suffering from seasonal illnesses. In a release, he warns the Grady Health System could have to make, quote, tough choices on providing care if admissions continue to grow. Meanwhile, here in the state, the Department of Public Health reports an additional 136 deaths just yesterday. So to date, 10,444 Georgians have died due to the virus. In total, 654,356 COVID-19 cases have been confirmed and 45,533 have been hospitalized. Of those, 7,837 considered ICU admissions. As always, our information comes from the Georgia Department of Public Health. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. This week, the Congressional Black Caucus held a hearing about the U.S. Capitol attack. In attendance with the members of the CBC, Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and civil rights activists, including my next guest. Now, since the deadly attack that left five people dead as a result of all of that, a lot has happened. And of course, most recently, the House voted to impeach President Donald Trump, making him the first president in the nation's 245-year history to be impeached twice. Now, this is all happening, of course, while we're still in the midst of a global health crisis and just a week before the inauguration. Joining me now to share his thoughts on all of this and why he called for Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment is National Urban League President and CEO. He joins me again, Mark Morial. Thanks again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's great to be with you, Rose. Thank you so much and appreciate uh, the chance to speak to your listening audience. You know, last night, President Trump tweeted a video from the White House Twitter account. And in this video, he condemns what happened at the Capitol, speaking out against political violence. And he called for peace. Take a listen. There is never a justification for violence. No excuses, no exceptions. America is a nation of laws. Those who engaged in the attacks last week will be brought to justice. Now I am asking everyone who has ever believed in our agenda to be thinking of ways to ease tensions, calm tempers, and help to promote peace in our country. 
Mark Morale, how much of a difference would this have made if the president issued this last week sometime? How about four years ago? How about during Charlottesville? How about when uh, he condemned the uh, uh, black football players who took a knee? Uh, this, this, if he'd said this consistently, if it had been a theme of his, it would be believable and credible. But uh, Donald Trump has no credibility to, if you will, usher, issue a message of that sort to call for peace in an effort to really distract attention away from the role he and his supporters and followers like Roger Stone, Rudy Giuliani, and others played in this attempted coup. What we're going to learn is that with this was an orchestrated plan intent mm -hmm. to overthrow the Congress of the United States. And it's unfortunate, uh, and the investigation has to continue on multiple levels, uh, but we need, to be, we need to understand what we're faced with, and that is an, an emboldened, uh, white supremacist uh, hate movement that is bent on violence, bent on violence. When you testified at the Congressional Black Caucus hearing, you compared the response to the racial injustice protesters from last year in June to what took place by insurrectionists on January 6th. And you talked about just how different the response was by law enforcement. There's some responsibility that lies there, you believe, too. I think... Uh, there appear to be forces within the Capitol Police mm -hmm. that was absolutely sympathetic to and may have been enablers of the insurrectionists, the rioters, uh, and the coup planners. We need to get to the bottom of it because if so, Rose, it points out something that many of us have long known, and that is that there are forces that uh, have infiltrated many police departments across the nation uh, that are white supremacists and haters because becoming a member of law enforcement gives one access to a gun, a badge, and power to carry out force uh, on, on black people and poor people and brown people. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the pattern we've seen, unfortunately, too much over the last several years. And so that, in pointing that out, that there was absolutely on tape a Capitol Police officer with a MAGA, MAGA hat on, escorting the insurrectionists around the Capitol. Mm -hmm. uh, if that is the case, that officer needs to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. He needs to spend time in jail, and he needs to be held accountable. This is a time when these insurrectionists, these rioters, the planners, uh, follow the evidence, follow the trail. I'm also interested in the money. I understand mm -hmm. there were people paying for buses, people who may have financed plane tickets. This was an orchestrated planned attack. Now, it wasn't a peaceful attack. A peaceful, it wasn't a peaceful protest march. It was an insurrection and it was a riot. People came armed. People came with uh, incendiary equipment, came with guns, came with the rhetoric of a violent attack. And in this country, we must stand up and all who participated in this must be held accountable. That means prosecution, mm -hmm. that means trial, and if they're convicted, it means jail. The vote to impeach President Trump was 232 to 197, and a total of 10 Republicans sided with the Democrats. But given how close the inauguration is, and the question that's out there is, is it necessary for the Senate to move forward with an impeachment trial? 
I believe it is. And although the impeachment trial may come after President Trump leaves office, mm -hmm. uh, the sanction would be he could not run for office, hold any federal office, and he would lose the benefits of his post-presidency, which are Secret Service protection, uh, a lifetime retirement, mm -hmm. staff support, and access to uh, sometimes from, to intelligence briefings and other things that are provided to a president, a, a, former, a former president. That could be stripped away by the United States Senate. Can you imagine what we're seeing here, Rose? The possibility that an outgoing president of the United States, in an effort to retain power, becomes a treasonous inciter of violence and coup planner. Now, this is so unprecedented in American history. We've had bitter elections. We've had tough debates. Uh, we've had friction, but we've never seen this scenario. It's an embarrassment to me. It's painful to me as an American uh, to see this. It is the stuff of totalitarian uh, regimes, uh, banana republic regimes, uh, regimes that don't respect the rule of law, where someone loses an election, they cry fraud, and they just stay in power indefinitely. We have to send the message in the United States, no, 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 a thousand times no. And so I know people have been fighting through 2020 with COVID, George Floyd, the election. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to continue to work and fight in 2021. What's clear is this is a long-term battle for the soul, for the future, for the equilibrium uh, of America. Uh, we celebrate in a few days the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. who led a peaceful protest and nonviolent resistance. These protesters who call, how dare they call themselves patriots? How dare they claim the mantle of patriots when they can't, they're not patriots. They're insurrectionists, they're rioters, they're coup orchestrators. Let's continue on with the accountability here, because here in Georgia state legislature, our lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, is stripping chairmanship posts from those state lawmakers that supported and peddled President Trump's baseless claims of voter fraud in order to reverse the presidential election in his favor. Do you think in Congress, for those who did the same, should they face some type of similar action as well? They should face censure. They should be banned from positions of leadership. They need to be called out. Uh, I think that uh, reasonable people, uh, fair-minded people, uh, people who are uh, care about this nation, uh, corporations, political action committees should discontinue financing them. If they were involved in an insurrection, they're not fit Mm -hmm. to hold public office. And I would go even a step further. Well, let's see where the evidence may form a basis for them to be prosecuted as well. Uh, that is what is so key. We, we have to follow the evidence. The evidence is going to be in emails. It's going to be in text messages. It's going to be in web content. It's going to be in uh, information provided by some who've been arrested already. Uh, we there needs to be complete transparency. You know, this is a shocking event. It's it's shocking. 9/11 was shocking. Hmm. The death of President Kennedy 
was shocking. The death of Martin Luther King was shocking. Uh, this is on order with that. The response of the government after Hurricane Katrina, shocking. This is on the order of one of those days that will live in American history forever. I asked a former Georgia congressman just the other day if the Republican Party, as a collective, needed to admit to some responsibility or culpability for what happened on January 6th, if Congress is to play a role in trying to, I don't want to use the word heal because healing makes it sound so finite, but if they're going to play a role in bringing this nation together, which obviously is politically divided, does the Republican Party need to admit to some responsibility in all of this? Some members of the Republican need to admit to being bullied, need to be uh, bamboozled. It's been so interesting to me to watch Mitch McConnell pirouette. All of a sudden, he makes a pirouette. Now, it's convenient that it's at the moment Trump is about to leave office and Mitch McConnell is about to lose some of his power. So, you know, you question whether it is a move of expediency or a move of sincerity. But let's not question what it is. It is a signal that many Republicans recognize that Donald Trump and he's, he's run through the Republican Party like uh, Sherman ran through Georgia. He's literally burned the whole thing down. Uh, he's made it a cult of his own personality. And, and there's some reckoning that's got to happen over there. I'm far more focused on the need for there to be a coalition of people, regardless of political persuasion or race or region in the country, that wants to support a move uh, to restore this nation, mm -hmm. to rebuild this nation's economy, to make progress on racial justice, uh, and to move the nation beyond the muck that we've been living in for the last four years. So let's end our conversation there. How can civil rights organizations like yours, the National Urban League, be helpful to the new administration? Because, of course, there's still the pandemic to contend with, the vaccine distribution plan, other issues tied to the virus, perhaps another stimulus package. What can an organization like yours do to help the new administration proceed in what you just talked about? We have a dual role. Uh, one role is to hold every president and every administration accountable. Our second role is to help to support when policies that are advanced are consistent with what is best for our community. And I certainly will be active on both fronts. Sometimes people may not see the accountability conversations because sometimes they do take place in closed meetings where you raise concerns with people and they respond in heed and say yes. Uh, we've been working, for example, pushing, and I'm, I'll be very, very, very eager to learn what President-elect Biden says about vaccine distribution. And hopefully he's going to incorporate our recommendations on community-based distribution. Mm -hmm. uh, we've made recommendations with respect to stimulus and response. Uh, we're eager to see whether some of our recommendations that cities and states, uh, that there be a moratorium on foreclosures and rents, that, uh, that unemployment benefits be extended, uh, uh, that a number of things be done to assist black businesses uh, are incorporated into his issue. So when he stands up and says, I heard you, 
and your ideas are in my proposal, we got to fight to make sure they happen. National Urban League President and CEO, as always, Mark Morial. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, Rose. Thank you very much. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The violence at the U.S. Capitol last week continues to be the story. Now, yesterday, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to impeach President Donald Trump for, quote, incitement of an insurrection. Americans of all colors and creeds have laid down their lives in the struggles against tyranny, the fight against fascism, and the defense against those who would betray the values upon which this nation was founded. It is our duty to shoulder that defense of our democracy here today. The president's actions have laid bare his contempt for our Constitution, and he must be removed. That was U.S. House Representative from Georgia's 6th District, Congresswoman Lucy McBath. Now, lawmakers aren't the only ones condemning last week's events. Earlier this week, more than 157 law school deans issued a joint statement calling last week's violence, quote, an assault on our democracy and the rule of law, close quote. Well, joining me now to talk more about this and why they signed on to the statement, we have Marianne Bobinski, Dean of Emory University School of Law, and from Mercer University School of Law, Dean Kathy Cox. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Dean Cox, let me begin with you. This is quite unusual. How did all this come about with, you have dozens of law school deans coming together to issue this joint statement? It is quite unusual, Rose. Um, Mary Ann and I, I think, would agree that law school deans across the country have tried a couple of times, uh, even in the last year, to issue some joint statements on things happening nationally that we all felt strongly about. But when you try to write a statement or a letter uh, by committee, by any committee, it's a challenge. But when you're talking about almost 200 law schools uh, across the country, it's a real task. So the idea that uh, almost uh, 160 law school deans came together because we all felt so strongly about what has transpired here in the last week, but even in the last several months, uh, is a testament to what we all believe as law school deans, what we're trying to educate our students to be as future lawyers. Um, it, It was a testament to our ability to work together Uh, and emphasize the importance of the rule of law among our co-professionals and to the country. Was there any hesitation not to sign on to the statement, uh, Dean Bobinski? No, I I agree with with, uh, my colleague, uh, Dean Cox. The role of law schools is to study and to teach about law and about our constitution about what the rule of law means and about the role of lawyers in protecting our security, 
economic prosperity and the rights of, of individual citizens. And this was a clear moment to speak out in defense of those things. When we talk about the rule of law in this nation and those basic principles, now if there's any entity that should governed by those tenets, it's the United States Congress. Yet there were some members of Congress that went along with the president, taking his message to their constituents that the election was stolen and that the and that was a core belief of these insurrectionists as they stormed the Capitol and, and assaulted officers. Through your own lens, and this is your own personal belief, do those members of Congress also bear some responsibility, particularly for those who might be lawyers, you know, attorneys who know know better. I'll speak first. I, I certainly think they do because not only whether they're lawyers or not, but the first thing that a member of Congress does is to take an oath, an, a sacred oath to uphold the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America. They don't take an oath to be loyal to an individual or to the President of the United States. Their ultimate loyalty is to the Constitution. And in our Constitution and in the laws of this country and the laws of the several states are the processes by which we hold elections. And that's where I think all those members of Congress really bear some responsibility mm -hmm. for going down these other pathways uh, of saying that the rules of the road, the laws of our country and the Constitution don't apply when clearly they do. Dean? And I guess uh, for me, it's of course important to separate my personal sure. uh, thoughts on this from the Dean statement, which I think uh, for those who have a chance to read it, clearly is a reflection of the specific role that law schools have in promoting the rule of law and, and educating people about the role of lawyers in society. But certainly from my personal standpoint, I agree with uh, Kathy's assessment. And in that statement, as it relates to those lawyers who sought to overturn the president, the presidential election returns, but you all say, at least you, you put your name to it, they betrayed, quote, the values of our law profession. So in your legal opinion, though, should there be any consequences for those attorneys? I think what the letter tries to set out is just to make sure that everyone understands that although lawyers are vigorous advocates for their clients' positions, mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes make arguments that may be controversial, may be challenging, may challenge the power of status quo, uh, there are limits in the role of what lawyers can advocate on behalf of clients. Uh, and in particular, there are uh, limits on bringing frivolous claims or claims meant to harass uh, others. Uh, and there's also an obligation, a separate obligation that lawyers have to actually uphold um, and educate society and our citizens about the rule of law and about the role of the legal profession uh, and the judiciary. And all of those areas are brought into um, very difficult conflict by some recent events. But as law professors and deans, we're not in a position to make an assessment about any individual lawyer and whether or not their conduct fell short, but is, is certainly our obligation uh, to make clear what the role of lawyers is in society and the stark limits that are placed there in order to preserve the integrity of the legal profession and our society as a whole. Well, Dean Cox, if in this letter it says, you know, that be these attorneys betrayed the values of our law profession, do you agree with your fellow dean there? 
Uh, I certainly do. And the statement was referring not to members of Congress, sure. because obviously this letter was written uh, before Congress has acted in the last week. But we were referring really to the litigation since November 3rd, because a number of, of lawsuits, as you know, have been filed that in our reflection were filed without a good basis uh, of fact or law. Uh, and that's where we all have a professional responsibility as lawyers. Um, as Dean Babinski said, often lawyers file controversial claims. Um, they file claims that are designed to change the law when they think the law is not appropriate. But all lawyers have an obligation to file lawsuits that are based in law, based in facts, and truth. Um, and in this case, as we know, more than 60 different lawsuits were filed that appear to have no basis of fact or evidence and were tossed out uh, almost immediately by some 90 judges who heard these claims throughout the country. And that does not equate with the values we teach in law school uh, or that the courts expect lawyers uh, to present when they appear before judges. What are those conversations you all are having with your faculty and staff about this whole ordeal and how you just said, Dean, this is not part of what we teach. So what are those conversations like? Has there been conversations about, okay, then what do we do with this here? Well, I think I'll, I'll just speak first and quickly and make sure Kathy has time, but I think this is one of the most important reasons why the deans issued this statement, the joint statement across the country, and why many of us also issued internal statements uh, within our law schools to our faculty and students, just to make clear what a pivotal moment this is for law and our society, and how important it is that each of us who has anything to do with the law dedicate ourselves to the integrity of the profession, to promote an understanding of why it is that laws play such an, you know, law and lawyers play such important roles in safeguarding our constitution and safeguarding our democratic processes and ensuring that each of us uh, is able to um, rely upon the continuation of our democracy moving forward. Dean Cox? The timing of all this has been uh, interesting, I suppose, because you know it took a couple of weeks after the November 3rd election to get certified results. Um, and then litigation uh, started uh, in mass. Uh, and that really timed with all of our students' final exams and holiday breaks. And both at Emory and at Mercer, we don't start classes for the spring semester until next week. So we really have not had our students back uh, in our fold to have these discussions. But I can tell you from the messages I've been getting from my students, they are ready to talk about this. Uh, they wanna talk about this. And, and because I used to run elections in Georgia as Secretary of State, mm -hmm. uh, they wanna know what I think and, and is this right or wrong and, and how can we make this better and how can this be happening? So I'm really looking forward to having some very robust discussions uh, starting next week. Well, let me ask you all this because there are some conservative student law groups peddled and supported these claims by the president and his supporters. You all obviously cannot censor or, or tell a student group how they should proceed, but is that concerning for you all? 
We, we, have, um, we have a number of conservative groups uh, at Mercer uh, Law uh, that balance uh, off of our more progressive groups. But interestingly, for example, at Mercer, we have a Mercer Law Democrat group and a Mercer Law Republican group. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm very proud that they are often work together to hold discussions together and bring in speakers together. And they, uh, I'm proud to say, have been able to have very civil discussions together about issues. And I hope that's the way we can approach this uh, election and the election fallout. So I'm looking forward to seeing if we can do that. Dean Babinski. Um, we same uh, environment. I think uh, for law schools, it's very important to have uh, diversity of views and diversity of student organizations reflecting different um, topics and different views on challenging issues in our society. Um, and our students have not you know, been present to react to and reflect upon uh, these recent events, but I do anticipate that we're going to be having very thoughtful and thorough discussions um, on all sides uh, about how to advocate vigorously for one's positions within the rules that we believe and that are established in codes of professional conduct uh, for the ac actions of lawyers. Well, Dean, let me stay with you for a moment as you wrap up, because the statement ends with a pledge of sorts. Quote, as legal educators and lawyers ourselves, we must redouble our efforts to restore faith in the rule of law and the ideals of the legal profession. Close quote. Dean Cox, where do you begin? We've always uh, emphasized the professionalism aspect of being a lawyer in our curriculum. Um, and so I think that will be a big part of these discussions, uh, as Dean Babinski said, um, that's part of our obligation as educators to, to educate this next generation of legal leaders uh, of their responsibility in the justice system to be not just zealous advocates, but to be true professionals uh, and to act with a, a great sense of ethics and integrity and professionalism in the way they, they advocate and, and put forward claims and to remember uh, the importance of truth and integrity in all that they do. Um, that's important, not just for lawyers, uh, but that's important to our whole system of democracy. Mm -hmm. So Dean Bobinski. So I think as legal educators, we have two important ways where we can address this issue. One is with our students, making sure that they understand their obligations as future lawyers to uphold the integrity of the profession and the legal system uh, and to carry out the model rules of professional conduct uh, that they are learning about in school. The second is as legal scholars to actually write about and study and understand what is happening in our society now uh, and the ways in which we as legal experts uh, can help our society through this challenging time. Marianne Bobinski, Dean of Emory University School of Law. And I was also joined by Mercer University School of Law, Dean Kathy Cox. Talking about a joint statement, along with more than 150 law deans across the country condemning last week's violence at the U.S. Capitol. We'll include a link to the full statement online. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. School districts in Georgia and across the country are grappling with how to keep students, educators, and other school personnel 
in an environment that could control the coronavirus. Now, some districts have chosen to continue with in-person instruction. Some have remained virtual. Others have opted for more of a hybrid model, which is a mixture of both. Earlier this week, we heard from Marietta City School Superintendent Dr. Grant Rivera. If at any point the data or their recommendations suggested that we needed to close, I would be quick to move in that direction. I also will say we're prepared to also pivot slightly differently depending on what the data tells us. Because it, 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 it could be, yes, we can be open, and it could be, yes, we could be virtual, but there also could be a middle ground where we have to explore kids coming only two days a week. Now we turn to the leader of another school district returning to Closer Look, DeKalb County School Superintendent Cheryl Watson-Harris. Superintendent, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me. Um, and I hope everything's going well for you. Yeah, we're all hanging in there, right? Mm-hmm. I recall when we first had you on the program, and I remember you talked about what approach you would use in making a decision during this pandemic. Take a listen. No one can really predict what's going to happen, but it will be data-driven and it will be centered on the safety of our students uh, and our staff. So you told me data-driven and then safety for the students and the staff. Is that still at the core of how you all are approaching whether or not to have in-person, remain virtual, a hybrid of mix? Absolutely. And thank you so much for the clip, because that keeps us all honest. Um, And I'm really proud to say that DeKalb uh, County School District, we've been consistent in our approach. Um, Our number one priority from the very beginning has been um, the safety uh, of both our students and our staff. Um, And we continue to follow the guidance from the CDC, um, which has evolved and shifted since the last time you and I spoke, mm-hmm. um, but it is still our approach. We are still following the guidance from the CDC and making all decisions um, in the best interest and safety of our students and our staff, even in an environment, as we know, with such polarizing views on what the, um, the best decision is. So as of right now, for listeners that don't know, Students are attending virtually only? Yes. All DeKalb County School District students are still fully um, in a virtual uh, setting. That is the decision that um, is best right now for our larger community. Um, And very important to share, you said at the top that these are decisions that superintendents are grappling with across the nation. Um, and and uh, I take this decision extremely seriously, and it's not one that I make in isolation. We've had a COVID-19 task force from day one, um, as well as our medical advisory committee. Um, and, and following the guidance from the CDC, again, is really that we focus on our ability to uh, identify, implement, uh, and monitor the mitigation strategies uh, as well as consider the positivity rate um, in, a, in our area. I'm sure you hear from parents and staff who are concerned about returning to in-person instruction, but I also know there's concerns, call it pressure if you want, from parents who say, look, we need to have the kids in the classroom. How do you balance yes. all of that, and what do you take in consideration from both sides? Yes. Well, thank you so much for that question. Um, Uh, Yes, in a a beautifully diverse uh, community such as uh, DeKalb County, we should expect uh, not only uh, diversity in the traditional ways, but also diversity of thought 
and we see that very clearly um, in the varied positions on whether or not we return to school. I respect and I hope that I have uh, demonstrated that, I have communicated that, that I respect uh, the position um, on all sides. Uh, but you, uh, what we have decided to do, and we have been consistent that we would follow the guidance from the CDC. Uh, in addition to that, working very closely with our COVID-19 task force, which has uh, representation uh, of all of our internal stakeholders on every level of the organization, as well as our medical advisory committee. So uh, we, we're We've been clear, we try to over communicate and be very transparent in what goes into our decision making process um, that we are leading from a space of keeping our students and our staff safe. Uh, and we respect that everyone is voicing the opinion that they believe is best for their children. Uh, but ultimately, we have to have a roadmap because otherwise we'd be bouncing back and forth um, without uh, clarity on how we're making our decisions. What have been some of the challenges with the virtual platform? Because I we received some emails from parents who are saying one of the frustrations they have is that, according to the parents, with DeKalb County is that there's little or no notice to parents when you're going to have these, I guess, what is it, asynchronous learning days that are taking place? Mm -hmm. um, that comes as a surprise to me, uh, but it's, it's helpful to have that information and know that parents are not receiving that information. Uh, we try to communicate every Friday. I've, I've started a superintendent newsletter that goes out. Um, to everyone who subscribes, uh, we make sure that we keep an update on any changes to the schedule uh, in that newsletter. We also update the website regularly uh, where parents can go and they can find out any changes. Uh, we have just the Wednesdays are asynchronous days, mm -hmm. so parents should know that. That's been since the start of school. Um, and we use that day to provide extra tutorials, and small group instruction for children who may be struggling the rest of the week. So it's asynchronous for the students, but some students will be identified and called into sessions with their teachers. The week of January 4th was a change in the schedule, and that was because of what I was hearing from the teachers in terms of needing additional time to get comfortable returning back to the uh, to the schoolhouse. As you Remember, uh, most of our teachers have not been back into the school building since March. Mm -hmm. um, and so we appreciate the parents' flexibility. Um, uh, again, concerned to hear that they did not receive the adequate notice about that. Um, and I will take that as um, a food for thought and, and make sure that we improve um, on communicating those, those matters uh, moving forward. Well, moving forward, let's look at January 19th because that is a, a date and correct me if I'm wrong, where some students in specific grades can opt for in-person learning. Is that correct? Uh, no, ma'am. We actually did a presentation at our board meeting, as we've promised all along, that each board meeting we would give an update on our return to face-to-face. -to -face. So you've pushed it back then? Yes, okay. yes. That was what we shared uh, at the board meeting. Um, that's That'll be in the newsletter. It, it, we, we made a video that we sent out to all stakeholders yesterday, again, using um, a new mode of communication, um, as well as sent out a letter to all stakeholders. 
what went into that decision to push back the January 19th date was again, looking at the CDC guidance. So the first is our ability to properly implement the mitigation strategies. That includes uh, the uh, PPE being in the buildings, making sure the buildings uh, are able to contribute to adequate social distancing, um, et cetera. Uh, after visiting a number of buildings, I could see that they were some that we need to do additional work in. Hmm. Additionally, the number of teachers who uh, applied for the hardship waiver, which was an allowance we gave our teachers who needed a, a little bit more time to get their affairs in order to properly um, and fully return, um, as well as looking at the uh, positivity rate in DeKalb right now. And as of yesterday, it was up 14.7. And we know that the CDC has identified anything over 10% as being in the high range area. So we made a decision to push back the uh, mandatory quote unquote return for teachers to February 3rd. That is what we announced at the board meeting. February 3rd, the hardship waiver ends on February 2nd, and teachers will be expected back into the buildings February 3rd as of now. And then as you've noted, things change in our environment, and we will continue to look at the numbers, and we will continue to assess our readiness um, in terms of our ability to properly implement the mitigation strategies but we are as a school community tracking towards february 3rd for the teachers and then our return to school plan for students has been consistent that students would return uh two weeks after that and we've made a commitment to notify our families on february 3rd about when students will return to the building parents will have the option not to opt in for the or it's, it's mandatory? That's what you want. Thank you so much for asking that question. We have made a commitment from the very beginning that parents will be able to make the choice that is best for their families. So uh, uh, something we're engaged in right now is providing professional development for teachers on what we call concurrent instruction so that teachers will be prepared and have the necessary technology in their classrooms to be able to teach both the students who are in person as well as those who are virtual. So families in DeKalb will continue to have that choice through the entire school year. Let me ask you this then, because you mentioned these buildings. Will all the buildings be up to code in terms of a new air filtration system, what have you? Will all these buildings be ready as well. If you're going to mandate that the teachers come in, then you have to make sure that the buildings that the environment that they're going to be working in is also, uh, I guess, prepared in a sense. Is that the case? Yes. Oh, yes, yes. I've been walking the buildings myself. <laughs> I went out on January 4th. I, I visited other buildings throughout the week. Um, I, I had our new chief operating officer out with me. Uh, he was on top of roofs and, and, and other things, really assessing the readiness of all of our buildings. At the board meeting on, on January 11th, and we can find this information on our website as well, we have created a new tiered system to assess the readiness of every building. 
Uh, we have, uh, 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 you know, assessed needs in buildings by safety, uh, all the way to cosmetic things that need to be put in place. And so we are now putting all our efforts on any safety concerns that we have to ensure and certify to teachers that if they um, are, are returning to a building, that it's safe. If you don't mind me sharing one specific example, I was at one school where we had uh, a close to 50% of the teachers who uh, had opted to apply for the waiver. And when I asked the principal, what was the, the major concern that the teachers had? Uh, she expressed that the teachers were uh, afraid of the air quality in the building, that this had been a long-term issue uh, predating me. And I said, well, what would make them feel more comfortable? And she said, an air quality study. Mm -hmm. So we immediately issued that um, to make that available so that teachers, if that's what was kind of holding them back from feeling as though they could return safely, we wanted to make sure that that air quality study was completed um, so that they can feel assured that they're returning to a building um, that's safe for them to be working. Um, and these are all the things that we're working on right now so that we want to be, you know, it's a different approach than others have taken, right? It isn't black or white. It's what we are all trying to figure out something new together. And we want to do it in a way that um, is compassionate and that is flexible and that we're all being patient. And that I, I, I do ask for the community to also allow for us. I know we're short on time. I want to just get this last question in. For the educator or that staff member whose waiver may not be approved or considered, what happens to that DeKalb County, DeKalb County Schools employee? Mm -hmm. Thank you for that question. Uh, the waivers did not have an approval process. They just had to simply complete it so that we would know who would be returning and who not. So there are no consequences. They, there were no consequences. And my messaging has been clear that while I was excited to see so many teachers return, I respect every teacher who applied for a waiver for making the choice that was best for their family at this time. That has given the teachers a 30-day reprieve to get whatever issues they had in order. If it's a medically related issue, then they still have the course of applying for an ADA um, accommodation. But we are, our priority, you know, is the safety of our students and staff. It's also getting our children back into the building. We know we have some uh, fragile students. We have some students who um, are not excelling in the virtual space. We have students who are uh, experiencing mental and emotional um, impacts of being in the virtual space and we want we want them to be um, in our school buildings and we want to do everything we can to first get them safe uh, for the return of the teachers and the students and have all those practices in place um, but we want to continue to work to get our children back in school and finally i know you're looking at the decab county positivity rate which could be different from the DeKalb County Schools environment positivity rate. Is there a metric that you'll use to determine maybe a particular school or, or classroom will have to close and go back to virtual? Is it one confirmed case, two, uh, and yes. contract, maybe perhaps contact tracing indicates 
that an individual was at an event or what have you, what will you use? What metric will you use to make that decision? Mm -hmm. We continue to work with the DeKalb uh, Board of Health on the guidance around um, uh, when we have a positive case. We have a clear system in place. We've been implementing that um, since uh, March even in terms of our administrative buildings uh, or related to our athletic programs. Um, we've been following that very closely. We have a phenomenal Dr. Ford from the DeKalb um, Health Department. She is a member of our medical advisory team, uh, works very closely with us. Uh, um, uh, Ms. Joanne Harris, who runs our uh, nurses in, in DeKalb, also working very closely, very tightly. We have clear protocols in place um, in terms of when we have a positive case and what the next course of action is. So I, I'm, I'm really, um, you know, really uh, showing a lot of respect to, to that group that has been leading that work uh, to date. Students and, st students and staff, when they return, Mask will be required, I'm assuming? Oh, ab absolutely. Masks are required. Uh, the uh, hand sanitizing stations, uh, and these are all things that we're going out to check and make sure they are in place. And then we have some phenomenal, phenomenal principals that have done extraordinary things. We're making videos to just release to the public to see the level of preparation uh, to um, ensure that we don't have areas where people are congregating. Uh, they have QR codes so we know who was in what space at what time and if there's a positive case to see, you know, for the contra uh, contact tracing. We have just, we've been doing the work, okay? <laughs> and I am so proud of this team. I, I am so proud of the work that they're putting in. Um, and when we are able to open the doors and have our children come back, parents should feel 100% comfortable that we have done everything we can to ensure that we're creating a safe space. Do you feel 100% comfortable that y'all have done everything? And that's my final that we're question. Doing, that we're doing everything. That's why our, our, te our, our students are not back in the building yet. But we are, when we have the date and we welcome our students back into the building, it will be because I feel 100% sure that we are ready for them to be safe in those buildings. One of those students is my, my own son. Okay, and what I want for him is what I want for all of the children. DeKalb County Superintendent Cheryl Watson-Harris, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It's always great to be in community with you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on the ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.